Hello, Norm. Hi, Barbara. Uh, here we are again. Yes. This is season four. Ah, yeah, you're right. It is. Okay. But who's counting? Who's counting? <laughs> season four of New Musings on New Music. And we are continuing on, it we seems, are. in some fashion. Yeah. We got some interesting stuff uh, we're hoping to get to. It's, uh, it's looking quite interesting. And our guests today are a force of nature, essential opera. Erin Bardua and Maureen Bat, Eastern Canadian-based uh, opera producers and performers and singers. What an interesting discussion we had. Oh, and with lovely tone quality. The voice, both being singers, their voices are just <laughs> lovely to listen to. <laughs> Projecting. Projecting and yeah. melodious and yeah. wonderful things to say. It was, yeah. oh my goodness, it's a lot of fun. I got a big yeah. smile on my face just remembering the conversation. Yeah, me too. So uh, listen on, good listeners, to Maureen Bat and Aaron Bardua, Essential Opera. You are listening to New Musings on New Music, where Norm Adams and Barbara Pritchard converse with guests from the world of contemporary art music. We are exploring some of the fascinating ideas found there and trying to demystify the wild and wonderful music. Today on New Musings on New Music, we're launching our fourth season with Essential Opera, Maureen Bat and Aaron Bardua. Uh, Aaron and Maureen, welcome to New Musings on New Music. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. We're really interested in learning more about Essential Opera, and I know that you're usually uh, based in Halifax and in Sackville, New Brunswick, but uh, you're coming to us today from Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, which we'll uh, get to the reason for that a little bit later on. Barbara, why don't you lead us off? Yes. Um, usually we ask our guests uh, to tell us how they got to where they are today. But since there are two of you, um, we were wondering about if you could sort of, in tandem, tell us how you got to the place where you met and then ended up creating Essential Opera. This is going to be easier than you might have feared because we met. <laughs> we don't fear in... anything. We're fearless. <laughs> we are fearless. <laughs> fearless that's magnificent uh this is aaron speaking by the way for your listeners uh because for after a while you're going to listen to two sopranos you're not going to know our voices apart but you can try this is aaron and the other one's maureen this is maureen that's maureen we've been joined at the elbow since approximately late 2007 i believe that sounds right because we both did our master's degrees together at the university of toronto and immediately, it feels like immediately, there might have been a slight delay, but we immediately became just the closest of friends and, you know, colleagues. And we ended up starting an opera company together, um, in part because we just needed to do something like that in order to keep spending such a ridiculous amount of time together, I guess. Yes. No, what really happened <laughs> was uh, we, it was at a time that some of you might recall around 2008, the economy was not doing awesome. Looking back, it's 
hard to imagine that that was such a terrible time because it's also not doing awesome today. But there was a phase there where a lot of folks in the arts were experiencing a lot of gig cancellations. There were a lot of organizations shutting down or reducing their seasons. And I know a lot of singers, including myself, lost out on a lot of performances. Again, feels ridiculous to say post 2020, but 2020 really just felt like a repeat to some of us, I think, of that time. And one of the things that was going on was was that I was having, you know, gigs fall through way in advance. And then the things that I did have coming up were being booked very last minute, kind of like, okay, we do think we've sold enough tickets. We really are having a concert kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Um, And in connection with that, Maureen and I would would also talk about, you know, the futures we were hoping for for ourselves. And one of the things was that well, we love hanging out together and yelling about music together and making music together, but the chances that somebody's going to independently happen to coincidentally hire both of us to be in a show where we get to sing together are actually not great at the best of times, and it wasn't the best of times. So we ended up deciding to put on a show, a single one, one single show. One. Um, we decided this in 2010. We were going to put on a production of The Marriage of Figaro, which you might have heard of. A rather essential, I might say, opera. Opera. Hilarious. And we decided to put on that show because it has two sopranos in prominent roles and we were going to get to be on stage together and we were going to get to put on this show together. And we did that. And in the course of doing that and figuring out how to let people know that the show existed and that they could come to it and buy a ticket, please, oh God, buy a ticket. We named the company. So it's kind of like when you pick up a puppy on the street and give it a name, that puppy's yours now. So we ended up with an opera company. And now we still have an opera company. And apparently we still have an opera company. Yeah. The same one. Yeah. So now you're both in Eastern Canada. Is that just a coincidence uh, that it worked out that way? It, it is. a 100% coincidental. Can you imagine? Uh, when did you move back to Halifax? That's a that's, that's another question that's for another year. podcast. Sorry. Okay, <laughs> my apologies. Twenty thirteen uh, and fourteen ish. Right, it was a l- lengthy process, yeah. and then I moved about two years later. I moved in twenty fifteen mm-hmm. um, for entirely unrelated reasons, but it's not been inconvenient for us to both be in the same part of the country again. So we usually think of opera as a grand production on a huge stage with <laughs> lights. <laughs> giant orchestra in a pit <laughs> yes scenery flying in special effects grand spectacle is essential opera putting on productions like that here in eastern canada you're making this opera production thing sound easy almost yeah absolutely exactly thank you very much yeah. for asking Norm. yeah great i think we're done we're here. done here <laughs> yeah yeah no i i entered as the contessa off of a fly wearing an enormous 20-foot headdress and mm. uh florence nightingale, florence nightingale style florence nightingale style um no that's not the person you mean no. florence nightingale was the oh nice nurse <laughs> Are you okay? Cut that part out. Cut it out. No, keep it. Do you need a drink of water? Do you need to drink? I have Florence Foster Jenkins. Florence Foster Jenkins is a It's much funnier. It's a a better poll, right? For sure. Florence Nightingale. I'm going to die. Anyway. No, do we make it easy? We don't intend to make it sound easy. Uh, Obviously, there are some things, and you both might have things you can recall having done during your lifetimes and careers that you did and didn't find super difficult because you kind of didn't know what you didn't know. Right. So when you're unaware of how difficult something should be, 
and not to portray ourselves as just total doofuses who didn't no, know what we, we were No, but we started doing. out and we just, we were we just good at it. organizing. We were good at admin. We were good at um, being people who cared about other people. So, you know, just rehearsal schedules and thinking about humans, all of that came naturally to us, which is why as we were organizing, it kind of... And people seemed to just assume that we were starting on this great big um, venture where we were going to be an opera company. And we were like, we've put on one show, calm down. Uh, But of course we were also immediately planning the next show because it was fun and it went really well. And we had great audience feedback. People seemed to like the way we had presented the work. So one of the things that we often do, not always, but often is that we'll present operas in in concert. And the way we see in concert is that the singers can be on book if they wish to be, which sort of reduces the amount of onstage rehearsal time that you need, which is a budgetary concern as well. Um, It reduces the amount of lead time the performers need because they don't have to ingrain the score into their memory such Mm -hmm. that they might never miss a word. That It can be at a different level of preparation where you're still kind of percolating it, still pondering it. You have your book there for reminders, that kind of thing. So it's, it's a lot more freeing and it lets you do new music. It lets you do rarer music, weirder music. You don't have to just do things that people find easy to memorize, which is cool. So the book is there if you need it. And then, you know, minimal hand props, that kind of thing, minimal costuming, minimal set, minimal stage movement, just Mm -hmm. enough to make sure we're really conveying the relationships between characters, the plot points, the fun stuff. Which also is how we choose the shows that we want to do. That's true. We are choosing shows that don't necessarily feature your example always is a giant elephant. Yeah, we don't (laughs) pick the elephant opera. If you can get through the opera without the plot important elephants or the like falling chandelier, for instance, then that's a better pick for us than one that has an absolutely necessary giant Mm -hmm. physical presence. Yeah, relationship-based storytelling. That's why we were able to do this for, I don't want to give away our budgets. That feels like secret information, but, but under $2 million, the Under $2 million. Between $3 and $2 million. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so when did you, I mean, you started with Mozart. Mm-hmm. When did you decide that you wanted to do some brand new stuff? Almost right away. Right away. Yeah. Right away we were, yeah. And, and of course, in order to be doing it in our third season, we were in discussions with composers we loved and that sort of thing, almost instantaneously. I actually think Alicia Denberg connected with us the night of our Figaro premiere party. Yeah. Yeah. So immediately it was, well, are you going to do new works? And we said, are new works essential? Obviously. So... (laughs) We will be like essential opera never meant just the hits you've already seen. It always meant things that we think are essential and mm-hmm. we get to define that however we want. And the cool thing about that, because that was our first, those were our first new works. Mm-hmm. We had an opera by Alicia Denberg. We had an opera by Chris Thornborough and an opera by Monica Pierce. And it just so happens that that is what we have just released mm-hmm. in September of 2023. Yeah, yeah, we just released an EP of Monica Pierce's Etiquette, which was written for us. Wonderful. And I might uh, remind Ooh. our listeners that uh, New Musings on New Music interviewed Monica Pierce in a couple of years ago. So right. you should check that episode out. Awesome. Now, 
I'm, I'm curious, what does an essential opera season look like? Is it a standard five shows a year kind of thing? Mm, such a great question. It's a great question. It's what we want. Uh-huh. It's what makes sense mm-hmm. in the flow of the works that we have been doing. We have most recently, I would say maybe for the past four years at this point, been exclusively doing new music. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that we wouldn't be excited to do something else, but we've just been living in this world of, of commissions and new. We certainly in our early days, we were doing, you know, a spring show and a fall show kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, but when you start getting into commissioning or producing things that nobody you hire to play in it or sing in it will have ever done before, uh, the timing starts to become more what is going to serve the piece and, and what are we all going to be able to do without losing our mental and physical health. So <laughs> such as it may be <laughs> to begin with. Uh, so it's, it's not been the same kind of like regular season programming um, or like festival style or anything like that. It's more been, Hey, look, we have a project. Yeah. It's so flexible. it's been a little bit more flexible. And of course, you know, over the last few years as well, we've ended up doing things um, digitally like video. We've produced a couple of small opera films um, for what are probably obvious reasons. So that has also changed, as you say, the flow of our timelines in terms of putting on a live show and calling it part of a season. Because of course, when you when you release a film, then it just exists. It's, it's, it isn't necessarily a thing that only happens on a certain Friday night in a certain venue, although it can, but our, our work is becoming a bit more extant past, you know, opening night, which is really exciting for us. Yeah. Great. So giving the work longer life. Yeah. Yeah. It's always part of the point. Always part of the point and especially important to us with new works, because if you're putting all of that love and energy into these works and these composers who we absolutely adore, we want their works to be part of the canon. And in order for them to be part of the canon, having these high quality recordings and short opera films and other things that get people excited about them mean that other people can access them better. Mm -hmm. Are are any of the brand new works you've commissioned, are they going to be getting um, other performances by other people like you? Etiquette specifically has been performed, um, I think, at Laurier, they did it maybe a couple of right. years ago. Um, Aunt Helen, which Monica wrote for for me when we did the uh, the inaugural um, opera from scratch, Janice Jackson's program, um, that has been performed, I think, by a couple of people, mm-hmm. um, and that's part of our upcoming larger project with Essential Opera. Even though it was originally uh, something that I did on my own, but it's moving it into this this collection the essential opera is going to envelop it and eat it like a like a like a pac-man we're doing weird hand gestures we're doing no, weird we hand gestures this, so we're doing it's weird really it's good radio yeah, is what it is really and what else i'm wondering well we performed regina and how you brought that to the gilsig jewish culture series yep back in 2015 and oh, yes cake. Ears. cake was performed by uh bicycle opera yeah um and when we did the workshop of Chris Thornborough's work, that was then produced by Tapestry Yes, that's right. The, the first performance, like our performance of that work, it then went on to have like another workshop and, mm-hmm. and some adjustments made to it and ended up having a longer life in that way. Mm-hmm. I think one of our biggest hopes is that once we have recorded these all of these works and put out 
you know, the, the full album of Monica works, for instance, which mm-hmm. is a big plan of ours that we're hoping to um, manage to do. Once that exists, then more and more organizations, whether they be school institutions or other companies, are going to be able to find it doable to put these works on mm-hmm. because there's yet another tool available to them in their learning and planning. And, you know, you can fire off a recording to a co-producer or a board or something like that and say, we want to program this. And it makes it so much easier for a work to start getting those legs under it and become, as Morton said, part of the canon. Well, and we also happen to be, for all the new things that we've commissioned and premiered, they're, they're chamber ensembles. They're smaller casts yes. and smaller ensembles of instrumentalists. So it really is more, we've always liked the idea of having something that is more portable anyway, in case we want to do it a couple of times in the beginning anyway. Um, so that makes it more attractive, we think, to anyone looking at it after the fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's the sort of thing that's convenient in different ways for different sorts of presenters or producers. You know, from our perspective, putting on a show that is here are the complete current works of Monica Pierce as an opera composer. That's singers repeating throughout the different works and singing multiple roles and instrumentalists playing in multiple things. If a, if a school like a conservatory wanted to put it on, it's a great opportunity to have these singers are doing this work. And then 20 minutes later, these other singers are getting a chance in this other show. And then these other singers, you know, so it's, it's a different type of reason why it's appealing. But I think that the works have a chance of being hugely appealing to present to lots of different types of folks. So typically, um, how many people would you have on stage? It, I mean, really Boy, that varies. I think yeah. our biggest show while back was probably... Massenet? Either, yeah, we did Massenet's Chez Gubin, which is a, a sort of, almost like a fan fiction sequel to... Um, to Figaro. Uh, to Figaro, because it doesn't... I guess, oh, that's a lie. It follows the Beaumarchais original plot line a little bit more than some other things do. So it's it's not... I shouldn't say fan fiction. And I say that with the most love and respect, by the way, <laughs> not to get your uh, listeners all riled up if that's a, a, a sphere that they move in. Uh, so Chicoban had a large cast because mm-hmm. it was following the character from the Mozart of Carabino through his adventures and misadventures off out in the world after he leaves the estate kind of thing. So he meets a number of different groups of people and has a chorus and all of that. And then we did um, the Brecht Vile Threepenny Opera. Yes. And that, that had a huge cast of characters as well. I mean, Figaro also has a big yeah, cast. So. so those sort of, we did three in a row that were really big where it was, you know, 12 to 14 singers on stage. And Skeeky. Skeeky is another, like, I think that's 12 people. Mm-hmm. And then orchestra. Um, is the orchestra and all of those we did mostly with piano. piano. Um, yeah, for Threepenny Opera, we had um, an amazing musician with us who played piano and also accordion. So that was great. I know, it was so much fun. A little circus just a little bit of circus stuff. It was actually somebody who I uh, met doing clown work, and she was perfect. And, um, but for, for instance, these upcoming Monica Pierce operas, those are three singers, several of them. And then the largest one is three singers and then a string quartet. So the setup on stage is pretty flexible. You know, where are you putting Mm -hmm. the strings? Where are you going to stand to sing? Where are characters during different scenes? It can fit into a large space where we take mm-hmm. advantage of that room or it can be in a little space as well. So do you aspire to a fully staged work with lights and curtains and flies and stuff like that? 
and elephants. And it depends on the piece. I right? was just going to say, but it's such a great question to talk about one of our upcoming right. projects. That's true. Which so. will be our first fully staged, all the those types of theatrical bells and whistles. Perhaps no elephants, just to... We um, were working with Halifax composer Fiona Ryan on an upcoming work, we think within the next two to three years. And that will be fully staged. And yes, we'll have more of those elements. We will not be doing that in, in concert. And that will be particularly useful and exciting for this work, which is called In Her Hands. Mm -hmm. The... The piece is going to have a lot of elements that are very atmospheric and that will really benefit from, you know, theatrical tech in a way that a lot of our other pieces, I don't think we felt needed that at all. But this is it's sort of embedded in the piece that there would be, um, there are some eerie vocal effects and maybe some electronic processing on some of the voices. It just, it needs that other element because mm -hmm. of that's part of the design of it. Are you being cagey because you don't want to yes. say too many details about it? I just don't want to say the word. Oh, I always. These are musicians. It's probably okay. <laughs> um, it's based on a certain Shakespeare play that begins with M and that some people don't like to mention in certain circumstances. We're probably safe in a hotel room. Um, so it it's Shakespeare. Yes. It's based on Shakespeare's play. And uh, we're really excited about about where this is, where this is headed. It's so awesome. So we're doing a... Um, workshop version of it coming up this February in Sackville, New Brunswick uh, at the beautiful Mater Fancy Theater that is on the Mount Allison campus. And we'll be exploring a few of those theatrical elements there and a few of the um, wilder improvisatory vocal and instrumental elements. And Fiona and is exploring with unconventional notation. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the workshop process that's been going on and will continue to go on. What types of ways is she notating this opera that will be most effective or give her the result that she wants? It's also very much based on um, her, her style of composing for this. And at some point, maybe it would be fun for the two of you to talk with her about this. Yeah. It's really, <laughs> I love listening to her talk about it, but it's really a a co-creation in the sense of removing the hierarchy that might exist between, or just even the stages that are normal for commissioner, producer, singer. Fiona is really interested in this being more of a collaborative process. She is the person writing the opera, to be clear, but we are working together in this different way, which is really fun. We have some sirens now, which are not part of the pitch for In Her Hands. No. So Barbara and I were talking, yes. and we thought, you know, opera's been around for about four centuries, a little more than four centuries. Why is it still relevant? What is it about opera that is special uh, and that tells a story better than other idioms? Why Would you like me to talk first you while you recover Do you have an opinion? That? I have things to say that are more about personal rather than about why opera? I mean, I, I am one of those people that started music lessons 
um, fairly young, but not absurdly young. You know, I started with piano. Um, uh, this was back in the day when school music programs still existed. And so I was lucky enough to start school band as in um, grade five, which is younger than a lot of places. I played the flute because I wasn't going to need to demand rides to and from everything because a flute is small, which I think is a frequent parental concern. So it's a legitimate way to choose an instrument. Um, and I really took to the flute. So eventually I ended up taking um, my undergrad in flute at the University of Victoria. And the whole time through all of this, I wanted to sing. And for various reasons, taking singing lessons, being in you know a really advanced youth choir, that kind of thing wasn't available to me alongside of the other things I was doing. You kind of had to choose. There wasn't time to be. There was you know a wonderful youth choir in Winnipeg where I was living in my teens, but I couldn't be in that and be in the youth orchestra. And the youth orchestra was really important to me. So I did all of the like competitive flutist things and the whole while really wanted to sing. Um, I was also one of those annoying theater kids. So in you know high school, I was one of the kids hanging out in the theater and playing cards and stuff like that every day instead of leaving the building when I could, that kind of thing. So when you take a musician who loves the theater, at some point, they almost always dabble in opera, I think. If they don't go music theater and I cannot walk in a straight line without falling over or hitting something. So I will not be dancing. So I do not do a lot of music theater. I love music theater. I do the kind where you don't sing the sort of like weird, uncomfortable um, modern musicals. Those are great for me. Old fashioned musicals, less good. Can't dance. It's fine if you're the lead because the lead stands still and everyone dances around her, but you don't get to always be the lead, right? So anyway, opera though, opera. Now hang on a moment. Opera has marvelous singing and marvelous music generally not as much dancing we love that um and i and i really we had you know some recordings of operas and stuff growing up that would play in the house and i was just so obsessed with the sound and with the the like amazing range and and the tone of the voices and i whenever i had the house to myself i would like sing in my fake opera voice and i used the money i was supposed to use to buy flute music to buy vocal scores and to buy song books and then i would teach them to myself i know the worst just the worst nerd um and eventually i figured out how to get some singing lessons on my own when I was in university studying flute. And by the time I finished my flute degree, I knew I wanted to be a singer. So I just kept going, but put the flute away pretty much. Um, and opera just seemed like such a logical progression for me, especially because the, the type of voice I have lends itself to that more than it lends itself to other things. I think for some people finding the color and the loft for opera is a big stretch. Um, but because my musical exposure had already been very classical and I was already playing the flute, which is high and uses vibrato, just my aesthetic matched opera so easily. So it just, it was just the place that I was going to go. You couldn't have stopped me, you know, and they still can't stop me no matter how hard they try. <laughs> Maureen, do you have an answer other than a look of horror? Well, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't so much about like, it's opera specifically instead of singing, but your mm. answer made so much sense. Of course, my path, shockingly, because we are two different humans, what? is slightly different. Only slightly, though. Yeah. Only slightly, because I also started with piano. Mm -hmm. And then I played violin. I played in fiddle groups. And, you know, that was really fun. And then I started on saxophone. And I did play Barry, and it was very heavy, and it did take up a lot of space. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't my primary instrument, but alto was. Um, but... I really felt connected to 
all of the like all of the band, all of the choir stuff. And choir felt different. There was something about singing that felt different. Mm-hmm. Um, I've learned that somebody was taking private voice lessons when I was in choir. And apparently I demanded that I also needed that to my, that's the story my mom tells. I don't remember demanding this. It just doesn't seem at all my personality. It absolutely does. So I started <laughs> voice lessons. <laughs> I was going to say, I was waiting for you to get hit by lightning, but yeah, no, 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 you were admitting it. Okay, that's fine. No, so I started voice lessons quite late uh, with this grade nine. And then it was, I think it's late considering it feels late because I went to Fredericton High School and at the time there were 3,000 people at Fredericton High. And so we had these massive band programs, massive, you know, music productions. And so everybody that I was in band with had been taking lessons, private lessons on their instruments since they were a fetus. Oh, wow. So when I started, (laughs) I know, I don't know why I said that. When I started my lessons and I was 15, everyone else had already been taking them for so, so many years. And I don't know why I didn't sort of like add in my total, my piano lessons, my violin lessons, (laughs) and my sax stuff. I guess I didn't take private sax lessons, but I did grow up going to the beloved UMB Music Camp that Richard Hornsby ran. So that was, and there were so many people there, like there were these masses and masses of people. So it was like really good training. So at some point, I think in high school, similarly, I thought this feels different. Singing feels different, but it wasn't, I didn't immediately go to any particular genre. I just knew that singing felt different. And soon I wasn't practicing my violin and piano anywhere near as much as singing. And that's just what I went towards. Although first I did a small pit stop at St. Thomas doing a languages degree, which makes sense that then I was interested in songs, anything that was telling a story, anything that had words and and just the aspect of language and any affinity that was there. So that wasn't, it wasn't an opera specific thing for me. It was anything with words felt different. And I loved playing in jazz band and I loved all of that and big band stuff and fiddle camps. I loved it, but it was different singing words and getting to tell stories that way. It certainly sounds like literally both of our stories are that we played all of these other things. And to, in your case, much higher than some of my instruments, but to a relatively high level in proficiency. But then singing was something that had this other dimension that we connected more with. But the art, I've never thought about the art form because I would not, I would never say that somebody would get up on stage playing piano or playing cello and not be able to tell a story to me. I would never say that, mm-hmm. but would I latch on to words if they were added to that more? I'm, I might, the way I process information, maybe, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I love it when a composer this is a bit of a tangent, but I do connect a lot more to music, especially new music, but any, any, any uh, time period when someone tells me what it meant to them and why they're like, talk to me about the piece maybe why you wrote it, maybe what I'm listening to, how you interpret it, maybe the questions that you want me to listen to while I'm listening to it or think about while I'm listening to it, or just your interpretation of this. And I don't, I don't care if it's accurate. Like if you, Mm. you've decided to put a narrative to, you know, a Beethoven piece, tell me that's more interesting to me than no context. Cause I like the connection with the performer. Yes. That's interesting to me. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people would prefer to come up with their own, but you want to know what the person's trying to convey. I just think it's yeah. fun. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it. we're both shying away from making a generalization about like opera being the best way to tell a story, mm-hmm. but it might be 
the yeah. way that we each best tell a story. And when I say opera in that context, I'm now just kind of talking about singing Classical because of course, sing, yeah. of course, song repertoire tells stories too. Mm-hmm. And, and musical theater tells stories too. And all of that is text and music and the human voice together. So yes. I think at that point, I'm just saying it's those things. But when you take a, a plot line and a bunch of characters and make it sung through, you've kind of hit most people's minimum definition of an opera. So you end up with an opera, whether you meant to or not. <laughs> so I guess essential opera, I guess all opera is about that storytelling piece, about uh, conveying a message through words. So I guess the words are the... It the is. Th- it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you find, you know, singers who are really attached to communication of text are also people who love a good poem are also people who love a good novel or so there is that element of but this also brings in the literary aspect mm-hmm. or a drama aspect with character development or with plot development any and, kind of a through line is there a lovely arc do we have a back are we learning more about someone yeah through their mm-hmm. development that is not that you can't have that in songs you do have it in songs sure but there is a special I don't know. There's a there's a depth. There's more nuance if you have a whole opera. It doesn't even have to be long. I mean, all these short operas that we keep doing are between ten and thirty minutes long, and they're they're very rich. There is that's that's down to it, interestingly, you know, we're talking all about the singing, but that's often also down to economy of writing in your libretto. Mm-hmm. So if you've absolutely nailed the little things that give an audience a wealth of information about a character and what they're doing and why they're doing it, then you can absolutely do that in a 10 minute opera. But in a longer opera, you also, if you need it, you have more room to explore that character. Mm -hmm. And a song might be a two minute chance to explain a character. So it's just really down to what it is you're trying to achieve, I think. So then I guess I wonder what can opera communicate that instrumental music can't? I mean, pop music or orchestral music or chamber music what does opera do better than leader say or a pop song yeah they serve different purposes they they they, they have different jobs like the difference between a short story and a novel there i mean there is the element that we as humans if you are able to phonate and you're able to speak we all do have the mechanism again if it's it's functioning mm-hmm. to sing it is part of, not everybody can sit down and play the cello, but we all- Preach. Yeah, <laughs> certainly not. Please don't ask me to do it. But like we're walking around in our instrument. Mm-hmm. So, and we all have it. So you might as well use it. So you might as well use a go-to. it. I mean, one of the reasons historically, and I'm looking forward to you getting corrections from music historians, and please feel free to yell at me about it and have me on to tag shame us. me. Yeah, tag me, have me back on to shame me if I'm wrong. But- you know, my understanding of one of the reasons why um, in, you know, the development at the very early stages of what we've now got as Western classical music was clergy delivering the same text over and over again in obviously a, a world before electronic amplification, needing to be heard by everybody and needing to be able to do the 20 different prayers through the day. I've made up that number. I know that's not the right number. Um, but you know, from dawn to dusk and in between these lengthy prayers and passages from scripture, etc., and they became sung or, you know, first chanted and then sung because when you're singing, you access your 
natural amplification. And you might tend to do it in a way that's more sustainable, which is certainly a huge focus of both Maureen's and my vocal teaching practices. Mm-hmm. Um, so it made you more audible and it made you more able to do it tomorrow as well. So some of it is just, we've got these instruments and the the sort of best, quote unquote, the most efficient and reliable way to use them to communicate is in fact to go from speech into singing. So that's part of it. But then also, why do we... Why do we focus so much on why do we bang on so much about, you know, the opera is accessible and the in, the relationships and the plot points are going to be clear. Well, it's because when you ask people why they don't like opera, they say, usually, because I don't know the songs and I feel like I'm supposed to read a whole synopsis and memorize the plot. And I can't I'm, understand I don't it understand and... the language and I'm not, I'm supposed to know what's going on. And I don't, I feel like I don't know enough to go to the opera. People used to say this to me all the time, to both of us all yeah. the time. You know, why don't you go to the opera? Because I feel like I don't know enough. It's like, well, why would you have to know? Do you know in advance the plot of an entire TV show before you it's watch It's so bizarre. It? It's yeah. so wild. I mean, okay, if you're like me, you do read the plot beforehand because yeah, you but don't, I don't like surprises, but you would rather die. But like, you don't expect that you have to have heard the symphony before you listen to the symphony. Why do you have this feeling like you need to already know the opera? And some of it, I think we've done to ourselves in the industry. You know, we give people this great big lengthy synopsis and say, you have to read this before the curtain goes up. And it's like, you don't though. It's okay. You don't have to do homework. You could just watch the show. So it became a big priority for us Mm -hmm. to put on shows where you didn't spoil the plot by writing out the ending in a synopsis but instead just put on an entertaining evening of music that people could enjoy without having Work. studied beforehand. Yeah. And so like we're not a history club. I think <laughs> I think it's because we've been trying so hard to get out ahead of some of the negative stereotypes about opera. I mean the number of people who I've said, oh, I'm an opera singer. And they say, oh, I hate the opera. And I go, oh no, which opera did you see that you hated so much? And of course they haven't seen or heard any opera ever before. They just think they hate it. Well, I mean, we're, we're working against that. So that's part of why our focus is so much on this is something that you'll understand. This is something you'll relate to. This is something that you'll be able to find something in it that you can latch on to and enjoy. Because I think that a lot of people already feel off put by the idea of opera being mysterious to them. Yeah, or just too much or something. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I was as you were talking about, you know, some of the origins of why things might have started to have been sung Mm. and in a western classical way or a classical way or in a way that could be in our system of self-amplification i was thinking music has always been something that is what we use for rituals from (laughs) forever and forever and forever ago and we've always had the human body as an instrument so before other instruments we had this so maybe there is something in our, our cellular knowing that is part of hearing stories with words. I I don't know. I would buy it. If someone said that to me, I'd buy it. <laughs> so if they said it with enough authority at a cocktail party, you'd be like, that's probably right. So both of you are currently in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia at Nova Scotia Music Week. Uh, what are you doing there? I always think of Nova Scotia Music Week as being a place for rock stars and pop musicians and things like that. What's going on for classical musicians there? Uh, uh, tell us what's 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 up. Um, we're here at Nova Scotia Music Week uh, for a couple of reasons. This is our first conference that we are attending, a music conference as Essential Opera, and we have this new EP, Etiquette, 
by Monica Pierce that we want people to stream and, and listen to and, and know about. And we have a short opera film that's coming out probably in a month or so that we want people to have on their radar. And we're just, we're in the process of talking about the next phases of this larger album of Monica's works. And so we're, we're out there, we're pitching. We're pitching for some live performances and for these short opera films to possibly be part of maybe mini film festivals or screenings. Um, so we're here to, to introduce essential opera to, to everyone. And I will have you say that Music Nova Scotia has been fantastic the past few years in particular, incorporating classical category and musicians to, to the whole programming. Um, there's just so much to learn and, and, when we separate classical, and I'm gonna, I normally qualify that by Western classical, but when we separate classical music in general from anything commercial, I think we're really doing a disservice. And being here and, and talking about publishing and, and syncs placement, sync placement, and you know, um, I mean, there's a little bit of talk about grant writing and you know, m money related organizational ideas and uh, what else? How to put, put together your team for touring. And, you know, it's not just, it's not just for bands. Um, yeah, I, Music Nova Scotia is doing a, doing a great job. It get, it's getting like more and more nuanced and integrated, I feel, every year. Um, it also just so happens that I'm here as a nominee for Dorme Dorme for Ladino Folk Songs, which was a song cycle written by Alicia Denberg and features Tara Scott on piano with me. Big congratulations for that uh, nomination. Everyone, go out and buy that recording. And that also conveniently leads us to our next question, Barbara. Ah, right, yes. Something we always ask our guests is, what in particular would you love them what, what in particular of your stuff would you love them to listen to or watch? And is there somewhere online where they can go and do that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, folks should look up Etiquette, which is our most recent release, the EP. They should look for that on whatever their favorite music streaming service is or go to Leaf Music, our label, because they have a beautiful little project page for every product that they sell that gives a link to all the streaming services. But you should be able to search that up uh, if you type Essential Opera and Etiquette, or if you type Monica Pierce and Essential Opera into whichever service, I refuse to plug any one of them, you will find that. Um, and that would probably be our top priority right now would be to have folks listen to that and let us know what they think. Yeah. And, and, and if they could, Ooh subscribe to us on i will say one service Ooh. youtube they will then be notified of our short opera film when it is of etiquette when we release it there is also another film that we have that is available to the public that people could check out that's really cool we did that in 2020 um it's mirror mirror and that's by anna pedgorna and that is featuring the two of us singing and electronics and it's um it was very much it was as DIY as a short opera film can possibly be, and we're but it it really worked. We're out. still extremely proud of it. I I don't think you would know. You would that know. We filmed all of it on our phones, and you know during kind of lockdown times, we couldn't. We weren't together. We couldn't cross provincial borders. We couldn't, at least in my province, you couldn't be around anyone who wasn't part of your household. So we like 
you our know, spouses were filming. Oh my, anyway, it forced our it, spouses <laughs> to film it and, and did it all by ourselves. And then, uh, Tom Belding, an amazing filmmaker in Vancouver edited the thing together and made it look just incredible. So and we're still also, super proud of that work. So that's mirror mirror, mirror by mirror. Anna Pagorna. So that's a, that's our only film that's currently available in its entirety to the public, to the public on YouTube. And if they did um, subscribe or follow us on YouTube, then they would get a notification to let them know About when etiquette. etiquette is coming out. And we're working with the same filmmaker, yeah. director, editor, Tom Belding for the Etiquette short film, which is going to be, I mean, it's going to be something. I, I am watching the occasional cut uh, as he sends us things and just howling because there are some funny things in there that particularly Maureen does that I just like, I have to rewind and just watch them again for the laughs. And I'm then I remember the I'm supposed to be paying attention to stuff. No, we'll get to that uh, later. Not, not available. <laughs> but part of it is that this etiquette is that we haven't even talked about what etiquette's about and why oh, somebody yeah. would want to go right. click on it. Yeah. So etiquette refers to Emily Post's book on etiquette uh, that came out originally in the 1920s. And the the setup of the opera is that you visit Dorothy Parker, famous witty human Dorothy Parker in her New York apartment on basically New Year's Eve, mm -hmm. writing her review of the second edition of Etiquette, which is not generally positive. It has a very Dorothy Parker feel. She's pretty sassy about it. And she may have been imbibing. It might have been imbibing. And Maureen plays Dorothy brilliantly uh, dealing with the fact that she has this giant book review deadline roaring up on her and a million parties to attend all at the same time. And she uh, is amazing in that role. And then we smash cut, it's not a smash cut, to um, Nancy Astor, politician Nancy Astor and Emily Post herself, um, visiting and talking about Emily's book and um, revealing quite a lot of their different perspectives on class and accepting people who are different from you and whether to be judgy of people who don't meet your standards and they do not see eye to eye on those things um, and we were pretty excited that by doing a short opera film this particular short film that we would be able to catch these nuances that you and lucy were doing so beautifully lucy hayes davis plays nancy astor yes brilliantly and of course you can see this on stage but there's another a different level that you can do with the film the close-ups and Tom did some cool stuff with mirrors and, and just like little tiny DIY type film effects to really evoke the story. And I'm, I'm now a huge Emily Post stan. I didn't know really anything about her before we started working on this project and I'm now obsessed with her. She was brilliant and hilarious and so, so kind. And her whole thing throughout the whole original book, because of course this book has been rewritten a million times to try to update it. You know, there's Emily Post etiquette about the internet, which is a thing that never existed during her lifetime. But uh, the original, her original point was to try to help kind of middle-class folks fit in in situations where they might be judged for not knowing the secret rules. It was like, I'm going to tell you all the quiet parts out loud. I'm gonna tell you all the secrets that the upper echelons of society like to hold over you and to use to divide us from them. And, and then in the same breath saying, and if somebody does it wrong, how dare you judge them? Just let them live their life. Let people be happy. Just be nice to each other. What's wrong with you? Just such a lovely, lovely human being and so funny. And I think that Monica really, again, so economically finds musical and textual ways to express that like inner kindness and light 
in that character during this unbelievably tense tea time scene with a much harder edged woman. Yeah, and, and the Loretta was written by John Terodes yes. and Monica and John then worked together. And Monica, as you say, the way Monica, she does this in all of her operas, yes. the way she writes about women in particular, we find pretty spectacular mm -hmm. because she's really giving us a sense of their personalities. Mm -hmm. And we're not, it's not just a recount of, of these historical events. These are women who existed in etiquette. These are real, real people. And there's lots there for people to read about if they wanted to and nerd out if they want to, but you absolutely don't have to, because it's not about that. You can just hop in there and it's about relationships. It's about relationships. Yeah. And it's, it's got clarinet. You feel like you might be going back to the twenties for a little party. And there's nice jazz age touches in there. Yeah. Clarinet. It's really wonderful. Amazing. I guess we should all go out and buy that record, as I said before. Uh, and everyone should go and listen to uh, Barbara's and my conversation with Monica Pierce, yes. which we made a couple of seasons ago, I think. It was a really great talk we had with her. She's a, really, a great Canadian composer, for sure. Maureen and Aaron, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. And uh, we'll look forward to hear more from uh, Essential Opera and both of your beautiful voices as soon as possible. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So nice to see you. Oh, thank you so much for having us. It's Thanks, been an Barbara. absolute delight. Thanks, Norm. We appreciate it. You've been listening to New Musings on New Music. Check our podcast website for links to music and more information about our guests and conversations. Don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date on new episodes and podcast news. Suddenly Listen acknowledges the support of Arts Nova Scotia in the production of this podcast. Thanks for listening.